They'll never go to a church where the preacher don't bring his Bible to the pulpit. <laughs> it's a bad sign. Uh, how y'all doing this morning? Good, good, good. Uh, this is the main part of our service where we just kind of open up this, this book and we explain it and we read it and we see what the Lord has to say to, to people like us, to people who have problems and griefs and burdens. And we realize that when we open up this book that we are not unique, that people throughout history have had problems and griefs and burdens. When we gather on Sunday mornings, uh, we try to make sure that our services aren't catered to one group of people, uh, to this category of people that everything is all good all the time. We realize that when we gather together, there's a diversity of emotions, of experiences, of expressions. And praise God that his word exposes us to all of those and to the God who cares about every single one of us in all those moments. When we gather on a Sunday morning, perhaps you're tempted, perhaps you're tempted this morning to wonder, does anybody care for me? Perhaps you spend all your life, all your weeks caring for others, and you wonder at the end of the day, does anyone really care about me? Often during this season, that, that feeling is, is accentuated, right? As we, we spend our time caring for others, we, we think meticulously about what each person's desires and needs are, what would bring a smile on their face, what gifts we might buy in order to make them happy on Christmas Day, only to find that in all that planning, all that strategic thinking, all that intentionality that we've poured in, no one pours that same intentionality and strategic thinking into us. You get them exactly what they want or exactly what you think that they would want, and in return, you get a pack of socks for the third straight year. Does anybody really care about me? More seriously, it, it, it can set in at a deeper heart level. When you're going through things and, and no one really asks about how you're feeling or how you're doing. How's your heart? How can I help? It's something we see in our passage this morning. As the Lord zeroes us in down on this one particular family and this one particular woman who's going through some issues in life. At a season of time in the, the nation of Israel where the whole nation is in demise. And if you're intended or, or inclined to wonder, does anybody care about me? So were the people then. And the Bible is God's testimony that God cares. And that God not only cares, but that God moves towards us in his care. He comes and he intercedes in our lives in ways that are far more glorious and far better than any ways we could imagine. So you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel this morning. 1 Samuel and this morning, we'll look at chapter one of 1 Samuel as we continue this kind of series, uh, thinking about the advent, the, the coming of Jesus Christ, right? It, that coming is precipitated by, by four signs of his coming in the Old Testament. Last week, we looked at Judges chapter 13. This week, we were in 1 Samuel chapter one. Around the time of the Judges is when this, the events of this book take place, and Samuel is kind of a a kind of bridge from the time of the judges 
uh, to the time of the kingship, the monarchy in Israel, right? And so that's the kind of setting where we find ourselves this morning. First Samuel chapter one, I'm using one of the Bibles under the chairs. You can find it on page 225. We read, there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was greatly distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and Remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. But only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. 
But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worships the Lord there. I'm looking for kind of main idea to summarize these 28 verses in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The main idea of the sermon, I think, is this. The Lord sees our afflictions, hears our cries, and delivers us from our troubles. The Lord sees our afflictions, hears our cries, and delivers us from our troubles. As we study this passage this morning, we'll, we'll lock our thoughts around three scenes that we see in this text. So three points of the sermon. Number one, we see a family conflict. We see that in verses one through eight. Second, we, we see a faith-filled woman. We see that in verses nine through 18. In the third scene, we see a faithful God and a fulfilled promise. We see that in verses 19 to 28. Number one, a family conflict. Number two, a faith-filled woman. And number three, a faithful God and a fulfilled promise. First, a family conflict. Look with me again at verse one. We read, there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah the son of Jerohim, the son of Eli, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. If you observe it, you'll notice this passage begins similarly to the passage we read last week in Judges chapter 13. There in Judges chapter 13, verse 2, we read, there was a certain man of Zorah named Manoah. Here is a certain man who lives in Ephraim named Elkanah, though he lives in in Ephraim, other passages like 1 Chronicles chapter 6 tell us that this man belonged to the tribe of Levi. Yet there was nothing particularly special or noteworthy about this man. He wasn't a man of any distinction or nobility or status. He was just a certain man. But then we read in verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Penina. Benina had children, but Hannah had no children. And that uh-oh is right. You can all already just kind of sense where this is going just from that brief narrative. I mean, that two wives narrative with one fruitful and one barren is often seen before in the scripture. And it never goes good. 
Think of Sarah and Hagar, Abraham's wives. Think of, think of Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives. Verse 2 was something of an ominous sign based on previous problems that some strife is coming. I mean, that's what we should always expect when we do things apart from God's plan. In Genesis 1 and 2, God established marriage to be solely between one man and one woman for life. And the fact that men and women have since tried to alter that establishment to include multiple husbands at one time or multiple wives doesn't introduce a better way, but rather introduces a broken way. The Bible never commends, never approves of polygamous or polyamorous relationships. The fact that the Bible then records polygamous marriages as taking place, even among otherwise godly people, and the fact that the Bible even sometimes legislates responsibilities in those polygamous relationships is not at all a stamp of approval but it's rather a sign of how deeply sin has seeped into every single human being. I mean, understand that every instance of polygamy in the Bible is post-Genesis 3. It represents something of life lived in a fallen world, where fallen, sinful human beings disobey God's commands. Fallen, sinful human beings disobey God's command in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, to not commit adultery. Fallen, sinful human beings disobey God's command in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, that the king, who was to represent the ideal Israelite, should not acquire many wives for himself. And as a result of disobeying God's commandments, fallen, sinful human beings taste the bitter fruits of sin. I mean, you can survey just about all the instances of polygamy in Scripture and just see the disastrous effects that it had on Abraham's family and on Jacob's family and on David's family. Friends, sin never pays off. But it is often expedient. It does often provide quick solutions. Perhaps that's why Elkanah, who, who seems to be an otherwise godly man, acquired two wives in the first place. That, that Hannah's wife is mentioned first in verse 2. May signal that he was married to her first. But perhaps like Abraham before him, when he saw that Hannah could not produce children for him to carry on the family line, which was something very important in Israel, he took matters into his own hands and took a second wife, Penina, who could bear him sons. In any case, we see something of the family structure in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 8, we see the, the family dynamics at work. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that Elkanah would would make this trek yearly with his family in tow to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh. Joshua chapter 18 verse 1 tells us that it was in Shiloh where the tent of meeting, the tabernacle dwelt. And God prescribed that place to, to be the place where his people would bring their yearly offerings to him. Right, there were three annual offerings and this was probably one of them. And Elkanah, as a faithful Israelite, is carrying out his duties as a devout man of God. And as he sacrificed, 
Verse 4 says that he'd give not only to the Lord, but also to his family. It's a peace offering that Elkanah is giving. It's prescribed in, in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 through 18, where the offerer gives to the Lord, but then is also given back a portion of his meat to be eaten with his family in a meal of celebration and thanksgiving to God. And we read in verse 4 that when Elkanah sacrificed, he did as he was supposed to. He gave portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But that's not it. Because remember, Elkanah has two wives. And so there's a verse 5 to still be accounted for. He also gives to Hannah, his other wife. But to her, he gives a double portion. Why? The text tells us because he loved her. Presumably more than he loved Penina. Even though Penina had many children, but the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Again, you just notice what happens when you don't do things God's way. It sets you up for things like this. Uh, like having a divided heart. There should be no one wife more love than another. There should be no one wife provided for more than another. Because there should only be one wife. It reminds us of the story of Jacob's love for Rachel, which was greater than his love for Leah. And of the sibling rivalry that it fueled. Well, well we see the same here. Verse 6 says that Penina served as Hannah's rival and used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed up her womb. Verse 7, and it went on year after year after year after year whenever they went up to the house of the Lord. It's at this annual time of worship. When the whole family gathers together at Shiloh for an offering and a meal that Panina decides to act like some of your aunts and uncles and use this family gathering to start some mess at the dinner table. Hannah, girl, pass some of that lamb down here. You don't need all that. I mean, it's just you. All that meat ain't good for your reproductive system? No way. Party, why you ain't got no kids now? Girl, I'm just joking. Don't pay me no mind. Anyways, what, what, what's, what's new in your life? Anything fun or exciting going on? Oh, hold on, hold on. Yes, Dante, Dan, I mean, David, I mean, Daniel. Girl, all these kids, I can't keep up with all their names. Oh, did I tell you that I'm pregnant with twins? Anyways, enough about me. Anything new and exciting with you? You see, there was a constant pouring of salt in this open wound, using every single opportunity to remind old poor Baron Hannah of how full my life is. Elkanah Jr., go help your daddy. You know, Hannah, he's going to be just like his daddy when he grow up. Day after day, year after year, after year. It was a barrenness that Hannah couldn't change. Notice twice in verses 5 and 6 how the author places Hannah's childlessness in theocentric categories. 
The Lord had closed her womb. Why did God do that? As we read the story, it seemingly wasn't due to, to something wrong with Hannah, something that she'd done wrong. Hannah seems to be an upright, godly woman. Now, I think it makes the point that not all physical conditions are the direct result of sin, but often are so that the works of God might be displayed. Maybe this afternoon, read of the story of Jesus and the blind man in John chapter 9 as an example of that. That's very important for us to keep in mind when, when we experience suffering or sorrow, or when we see other people suffering or experiencing sorrow. It's not always owing to somebody's sin. Sometimes it's owing to God's sometimes strange and hard providence. You see, you can be very godly and not have all that you want. You can be very godly and still suffer. You can be very godly and still be barren and infertile. Just as there's no straight line from suffering to sin, there's no straight line from piety to prosperity. Just because you live for the Lord doesn't mean that God's going to give you everything that you want in life. That's good for us to remember for ourselves. That's good for us to remember as we deal with others. Perhaps that's a particularly good reminder for those of us in the church who are married and have children. We need to guard our minds and our mouths from thinking and saying untrue and cruel things. Assuming that this brother or sister's singleness or childlessness is due to some defect in them. Uh, some personality flaw or some personal baggage. They got a lot of it or some hidden secret sin. It could just be that God's lot for their life, at least for now, is to keep them single, to keep them barren. How cruel is it to cast stones at folks for conditions that they didn't cause and that they can't change? Your personality ain't that special. Your baggage ain't that light. Your sin ain't that small. In other words, the ultimate reason that you're married and you have kids is not owing to how good you are, but to God's good plans for you. And the ultimate reason that other brothers or sisters are not married or don't have kids is not owing to how bad they are, but to God's good and perfect plans for them. It's God who opens and closes wombs. It's God who gives or withholds spouses. He cares for us and his care is personalized. It's not all the same. And it doesn't always feel good, but we have to trust that he is good. Amen. We should never respond to others suffering the way Panina did to Hannah, seeking to cut deeper. You know, the agony of barrenness was enough for Hannah, especially in a society where barrenness carried a stigma. It seemed like you were cursed by God. Panina's constant taunts then, her slick remarks, her harsh treatment just made matters worse, sending Hannah into a downward spiral of depression. We read at the end of verse 7 that, therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. 
This is not a fast. This is the misery that some of you have known in life. It's the misery that the psalmist in Psalm 42 verse 3 knew when he said that my tears have become my food day and night. There's no appetite. No thought about what's wrong in life. That's Hannah here, hurting, weeping, wallowing in sorrow. And here comes her husband in verse 8 trying to help. Hannah, he says, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons combined? Back in the summer, we did a sermon series in the book of Job. And in three consecutive weeks, we, we did a kind of three-part uh, series in consecutive chapters labeled when friends are suffering what not to say well here in first Samuel chapter 1 we could add a fourth installment to that series this is not how we should comfort or seek to counsel others who are hurting Elkanah seems to have good intentions and seems to genuinely and dearly love his wife Hannah but he dismisses her grief and puts himself up as a more than suitable replacement for a child. But it misses the point. Yes, marriage is a gift. A good husband, a good wife is a gift. But the presence of one gift doesn't feel the absence of another gift. Marriage didn't remove the, the sting of childlessness. What this husband needed to do here was to empathize with his wife and seek to enter into her pain and seek to serve her in her pain, not seek to distract her from it by pointing to other things or to other people. Hannah's void is huge and her heart is hurting. And nobody seems to understand or to be able to help her. In their own ways, both Panina, her nemesis, and Elkanah, her husband, have only made matters worse. Where then can Hannah turn? Well, that leads us to our second point as we learn more about this faith-filled woman. Point number two, a faith-filled woman. Verse 9 tells us, after the rest of the family had eaten and drunk in this post-sacrifice meal that Hannah arose. And where did she go? Well, to the only place she could get some help and to the only person she fully trusted to help her. She went to the temple, a reference to, at this stage in Israel's history, the tabernacle. Eli, the high priest, we learned, was sitting at the door of the temple, guarding it. But Hannah didn't go to him. She went to an even higher authority. Verse 10 says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This is pretty amazing and instructive. Because remember what's at the, the root of Hannah's grief. The fact that she's barren, that she can't produce any children. And we've learned two times now the cause of her barrenness. The Lord, the Lord had closed her womb. But Hannah hasn't closed her heart or her mouth to him. She doesn't shut God out for shutting down her womb. 
No, she seeks out God and calls out to the Lord in prayer. And friends, it teaches us that we can and should bring all our griefs to God. I wonder, is that your first instinct? What keeps you from doing that? Perhaps it's a kind of wrong understanding of who God is. You feel like he's harsh and unloving and uncaring. Or that he's distant and aloof and unconcerned for you. But friends, understand that that's not the picture that we get from the Bible. That's not how God describes himself in the Bible or how others describe or treat God in the Bible. Rather, we learn in the Bible that God is the first person to go to with everything. And we learn that we don't need to fix ourselves up to go into his presence. Notice here that Hannah goes messy, deeply distressed, weeping, tears flowing down her face, not coming out of her nose. She understands I don't have to pretty myself up to go in the presence of the Lord. He wants me as I am with all the problems, with all the worries, with all the cares. God is not some formal idea of deity to her. God is a personal God who cares for his people. And he's a powerful God who will provide for his people. In verse 11, notice she prays, O Lord of hosts. That that term signifies God's might and sovereignty. Sometimes it means that God is the, the Lord of a host of armies. Other times, it it, it means that God is the host of a multitude of angelic beings. In any case, it means that God controls everything that you think has might. He has more. He controls all things. And Hannah here, even in her grief, has good theology about who the Lord is. Oh, God can do anything. Her womb is empty, but God's power is not. And so she can bring everything to him. Even the seemingly unchangeable things like her barrenness. And she prays to the Lord that he will look on her affliction and give her a son. Lord, look on the affliction of your servant and give me a son. Those words would ring true in in the Israelites' minds. Remember, these people were, 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 were crafted into the Old Testament stories of their deliverance. And so when Hannah talks about this, Lord, who sees the affliction, it, it would pinpoint the, the, the initial reader's minds back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. Uh, they were grieving. They were wondering, as we talked about earlier, does anybody care for us? And the text tells us that as they are grieving, as they are in bondage, the Lord in chapter, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. And Hannah understands that previous passage, not only to talk about a previous generation and what their God did for them. Hannah believes that the same God who rescued them will rescue me now. If he was so mighty and merciful as to do that great act of rescue from bondage, surely he can rescue me from barrenness. And so Hannah prays for the Lord to give her a son. Hannah not only prays for God to give a son, but she vows to give that son back to the Lord. She says in verse 11 that she will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and not allow a razor to touch his head. Now, what's that sound like? 
It sounds like where we were last week. Right, this Nazarite vow in Judges chapter 13 where the angel told Manoah and his wife that the son who will be born to this barren woman uh, should not allow her son's head to be cut with a razor or not allow him to go near or eat anything unclean. It's the Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6 where one was dedicated to the Lord. And here in 1 Samuel 1 and there in Judges 13, they were dedicated to the Lord even from the womb. This son, Hannah's son, should the Lord give him a son, would also take this vow from birth. Later, we'll see next Sunday, another child, another son will be born to a barren woman and he would take the same vow from birth, John the Baptist. We said this last week, this is not mere coincidence. Neither is it the Holy Spirit running out of ideas as he carries along the biblical authors as they write. Rather, this is a spirit-inspired pattern. These sons born to barren women dedicated to the Lord from birth are meant to be forerunners. Samson failed to keep his vow. And so what he should have done, prepare the way for a king, didn't happen. Instead, the last verse in the book of Judges sadly reads, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This child to be born to Hannah, a Nazarite, Samuel does keep his vow and he paves the way for King Saul, but even greater and better, King David. Setting the stage for John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner to King Jesus. The son born to rescue God's people from ultimate affliction, a bondage to sin and eternity in hell. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Hannah doesn't know anything about what this child might be or might do or how God might use him. But often how prayer works, we don't know all the answers or all the outcomes. And family, faith doesn't need all the answers or all the outcomes. Faith trusts God and trusts that God will do what's good all the time. And so Hannah vows to give this child to the Lord for his service. She vows to serve the Lord even with the very son she so desperately longed for. But while Hannah is praying, people are watching. Or to be more accurate, a person is watching, the high priest Eli. Verses 12 and 14 tell us that he sees her lips moving, but doesn't hear any sound from her voice. And his only conclusion, she must be twisted out her mind. She is lit up off whatever she's been drinking. Verse 14, he says to her, how long will you go on being drunk? It shows us two things. But first, it shows us the spiritual climate of Israel at the time. That it would not have been uncommon for a woman to be drunk during the day at the tabernacle. <laughs> Listen, Christians do some wild things, right? Christians do sin. But it's a special level of something when you come up to church lit up, right? He sees this woman and, and doesn't think that, that would be an uncommon thing for her to come offer sacrifices to the Lord drunken. It was so common. Such debauchery was so common in Eli's day. 
and it was so uncommon to see pious prayer. And secondly, it just shows us how imperceptible Eli was. He's the high priest. And yet even he can't distinguish between heartfelt prayer and sloppy drunkenness. If you read into chapter two, you see that a man was imperceptible even with his own sons. He failed to see and to severely punish his sons for the wickedness they did when sacrificing to the Lord. He'd so gotten used to sin at the sacrifice that he didn't do anything to his sons or to visitors. <laughs> but notice, <laughs> to the high priest, <laughs> this little lowly barren woman has to correct him. <laughs> Hannah says in verse 15, no, I'm not drunk. Rather, I'm troubled in my spirit. But again, notice how she's responded to her troubles. It is not like so many people in the world do by pouring spirits into her body, trying to drown out her sorrows at the bottom of a bottle, drifting into the delirium of drunkenness, as Eli expected. As many people say, is warranted. Yeah, you need to go ahead and self-medicate in all this misery. No, she responds to troubles, not by pouring spirits into her body, but by pouring out her soul to the Lord. She says, I've been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation, praying fervently, even if silently before the Lord. This is not another worthless woman wasting away her days. This woman is a wonderful model of faith that we would all do well to emulate. She's got griefs and problems. She's got haters and heartache. She's got desires and wants. She's got tears and inner turmoil, and she entrusts them all to the Lord. Corrected by this wonderful woman of faith, Eli has to change his tune. He goes on to prescribe a priestly blessing after learning about Hannah's situation and what she's been praying about. He tells her to go in peace, that the Lord might grant her petition. And look at the end of verse 18. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. But nothing's changed. I mean, she's still barren. She's still going to go back home with no baby in her hands and no baby in her womb. She's still going to have to go meet up. Well, that old insensitive meathead husband of Elkanah and that old ruthless adversary of Penina. Why then now is she ready to resume eating? Why then now is her disposition changed? Because she's looking on her situation, not as it is now, but as it will be. Hannah prays and trusts that God will answer her prayers. There are words we might use here. Hannah's cocky, overconfident, presumptuous. Uh, the biblical word that fits this woman is faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence, the conviction of things not seen. Hannah didn't see a baby in her hands. Eli didn't on the spot have a kind of ultrasound. 
She couldn't see with her eyes, but she trusted in her heart. She had conviction of things not seen. Hannah was assured that God would change her situation, and so she could change her disposition. You know, deep trust in God does that. It cheers your soul even as present circumstances look dim. You believe that God cares for you and that he desires to help you and that he will help you. Hannah came to the tabernacle, anxious, burdened, heavy laden. She left peaceful and with a lightened load because she cast all her burdens upon the Lord. She's a model of what we should all do. Go to God with our problems. It's a model that Jesus himself told us to do, to to come to me, all you who are laden, who are weary, who, who, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If I'm gentle and lowly, do you understand God to be like that? Gentle, lowly, tender to sinners and sufferers. I mean, that's his character throughout the scriptures. The Lord is harsh sometimes, but often the Lord's harshness is towards the hard-hearted and the self-reliant. But to the broken and to the burdened who come to him, he's gentle, he's compassionate, he's kind. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Maybe for the first time ever. Or perhaps for the first time in the long time, you need to trust the Lord. You need to lay your sins, you need to lay your sorrows down at his feet. Whatever is grieving you, you need to lay it down and give it to him. You need to allow the Lord who forgives sinners and the Lord who comforts the downcast to forgive you and to comfort you. Friends, nothing is keeping you away from the Lord today. But your, refusal to come to, but your refusal to come to the Lord today. If you're here this morning hurting, suffering under the weight of your own sins that are eating you up, and you know where you can find help, go to the Lord today. Turn from your sins, repent, and trust in him. Nothing else works. You tried it all. If you already are trusting in him. But some matter of life is so weighty that you cannot stomach it, shoulder it yourself. Give it over to the Lord. Bring it all to him. Trust that the Lord cares for you. Follow in the footsteps of this faith-filled woman and go to God. The question we have, will that faith be rewarded? That brings us to point number three. Our third and final point, we see a faithful God and a fulfilled promise. Our number three, a faithful God and a fulfilled promise. Verses 19 and 20 tell us that after Hannah's prayer, she rejoined the family. And they rose early in the morning to worship before the Lord once more at Shiloh before returning home to Ramah. And once home, Elkanah knew his wife. He had sex with his wife. And the Lord remembered her. 
And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. I mean, it's all stated rather matter-of-factly. But don't miss the reality here that a miracle has happened. This once barren woman, Hannah, conceives and bears a son. And see how Hannah acknowledges God's supernatural hand in it all. By even the naming of this son, Samuel, which sounds like the Hebrew word for heard by God. For she says, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the Lord has kindly and providentially and specifically answered my prayer. But says, also don't miss the reality that this supernatural miracle has happened through ordinary means. There was no extraordinary vision of God or hearing of God's voice from heaven that, that set everything in motion. Rather, this faith-filled woman simply prayed for a son. And then this faith-filled woman went home and had sex with her husband. Friends, notice how the Bible doesn't shy away from or get embarrassed in expressing things like that. Friends, the Bible does not condemn sex as the world would have you to believe. And so because God is against sex, then you got to make up your own parameters and provisions for it. No, the Bible condemns the misuse of sex, the abuse of sex outside the bounds of marriage. We read here just plainly and without any embarrassment or condemnation, Elkanah knew his wife Hannah. And the reason we can read that statement without any embarrassment or any condemnation is because of what the scriptures say about who Hannah is, Elkanah's wife. And friends, the only way you can have sex without any embarrassment or condemnation in God's sight is if you have sex with your wife, if you're a man, or if your husband, if you're a woman. In any case, through these two ordinary acts of this faithful woman, prayer and sexual relations with her husband, the Lord extraordinarily worked, bringing a son to this formerly barren woman. And saints, the Lord is still bringing supernatural birth through the ordinary means of his faithful people. He doesn't merely bring life to dead wombs. He brings supernatural life to spiritually dead people through the ordinary means of our prayers, of our evangelism, of our Christmas caroling. It looks stupid in the world's eyes. It looks like it's not going to have any impact of us going to people and telling them about some incredibly weird things that a God you can't see took on flesh and became a helpless babe. And even as a babe, that little boy was ruling the entire world by the word of his power. And that babe grew up to be a man and lived for 33 years and not one second of any of those 33 years did he commit any kind of sin in word or in action or in deed. Not in thought, not in once. And then at the end of that life, that 
that son who became a man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, laid down his life, picked up a cross, and died as a substitute for our sins, for all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And that that same Jesus Christ will bring us eternal life. He went up to heaven on a cloud, and that same Jesus is coming back again on a cloud to save us. That first advent is leading to a second advent. That first coming is leading to a second coming. We believe and say some incredibly weird things and it seems so stupid and so ordinary. How can God use just me fumbling and bumbling over this incredible message to save people? Because the supernatural God Amen. is in the business of bringing supernatural birth through the ordinary means of faithful people like you and me. He don't use the world's means. He uses his own means so that he can get the glory. Friends, keep trusting. Keep entrusting the Lord with your ordinary obedience. Your ordinary faithfulness to God in your marriage. Your ordinary faithfulness to God in, in sharing the good news with, with others. Your ordinary faithfulness to God in prayer. Keep entrusting all the little ordinary things in life to God. Let God do the extraordinary thing. You don't have to be extraordinary. God is. Right? You leave him. You leave an extraordinary business to him. You just be a faithful, ordinary Christian. You know what that does? It takes a lot of pressure off you as a Christian. You ain't got to be great. You serve a God who is, though. And he does some great things. God delivers from affliction. He delivers Hannah from her affliction of childlessness and from the affliction of the taunts of Penina. He, he visits the lowly. Penina was boasting in all that she had, all her kids, all her, her, her children running around. She, she, she was kind of self-reliant and looking down on Hannah, but God looked down on Hannah from above and looked at her with pity. If you read through the whole book of 1 Samuel, it becomes a kind of theme of the book. God don't look on outward appearance. He looks on the heart. God exalts the lowly, the little barren woman over the fruitful woman. The little shepherd boy out in the field who don't look like nobody to be the king. The Lord is in the business of looking upon the lowly with favor and with pity. He provided for Hannah. Showing compassion to the lowly and despised and exalted her in the presence of her enemies. God proves as he does over and over and over again. And as he has over and over and over again in your life to be a good and a faithful God who delivers. But how we respond once he delivers. And many of us forget God. Once he brought us about the storm. We dismiss how heavy the burdens were and how, how, how heavy and hard we cried out to the Lord once his hand has rescued us. Well, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> we renege on our commitment to him. After he so passionately committed himself to us. And it seems here like that's what Hannah is on the verge of doing. We read in verse 21 that after a while, it became time again for Elkanah and the whole family to go back up to Shiloh for this yearly sacrifice. Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, saying to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, 
no longer dependent on his mother for, for breast milk. As soon as he's weaned, then I'll bring him up to appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell with him forever. We can almost sense what's happening. Hannah is stalling. She'd have made this vow that if the Lord give her a son, she'd commit him to the Lord and, and allow him to serve him all his days as a Nazarite. But that was before she had him. Now that she'd have had this little boy, and now that she didn't held this little baby in her hands, and now that she didn't looked down to his adorable little eyes, now that she didn't seen all his features and how they looked like hers, all the little expressions that make her laugh and cry and smile, right? Now that she didn't seen all those things, there's no way that I can part with this little baby. But instead of telling God outright no, she just says, wait. It's easy for our minds to go there because that's what many of us do. The Lord's been incredibly good to you. Rescued you from all kinds of situations just this week. Rescued you from all kinds of situations over your life. And sometimes perhaps you've even vowed in those situations, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'm done. <laughs> if you just get me out of this, I'll respond fully to you. And yet you keep delaying and coming to him. Perhaps is where you are this morning. You've heard time and time and time again of God's greatest deliverance, of him sending his very son, Jesus Christ, to come die for you, to save you from your sins. But you're enjoying life now. And so you can't, you won't fully commit to him. Next year, you say. 2024 is the year. Later. But friends, many people's later never comes. Life is not promised tomorrow. Neither is a heart soft enough to respond to the Lord favorably. Sometimes a day later, a decade later, you find your heart a lot harder, more relaxed in life as it is, and less resolved to respond to God. As we read on in this passage, though, we see that Hannah's wait is not, however, a ploy to get out of her vow. Rather, she fulfills what she promised. Verse 24 says, when she weaned the child, she took him up with her along with the bull and flour and wine for the sacrifice and for the celebration of the house of the Lord and brought him to the house of the Lord. And she brought the boy before Eli, the high priest. And she says in verse 26, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was Standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. You remember, I'm the one that you thought was drunk. In any case, for this child, before your very eyes, I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I have made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, the boy, worshipped the Lord there. Hannah does what she promised to do. Even as heart-wracking as it must have been, of course she would have loved to spend every single moment with her boy watching him grow up day after day after day, the son that she so passionately longed for and prayed for. But more than that, she wanted to serve the Lord who'd given her her son. And more than that, she wanted her son whom the Lord had given her to serve the Lord. That's the greatest thing a parent should want for their children, to serve the Lord more than to serve me and my desires. And so she gives her son 
her only son to the Lord with a sacrifice that he might serve the Lord all his days. Through this son, Samuel, God would go on to change the trajectory of his people Israel, leading them from a time where there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own sight to a time of godly leadership and prosperity under King David, whom Samuel grew to, to be a judge and a prophet over Israel and to anoint this coming king. It points us to the Lord's amazing provision of another son, his only son, also miraculously born through the womb of a virgin. He was brought into the world also to serve the Lord from his birth. He too was presented at the temple with a sacrifice soon after his birth. But his life was not only to begin with a sacrifice to God, but also to end with a sacrifice in service to God and for the sake of us that we might live. Jesus Christ was a son born and who ultimately died, suffering in our place as our substitute for our sins, and he rose again to save sinners like us from our sins. He was the king that Samuel's ministry as a forerunner ultimately pointed to, a king who would rule and rescue and reign forever. The king who, who, who saw the afflictions of his people. The king who heard their cries. And the king who left heaven to deliver his people from their troubles. Saints, celebrate him. Give thanks to him this Christmas season. God cares for us. Who cares for you? Does anybody care for you? God cares for us. So much so that he came for us to save us. He intervenes in the life, lives of his people as he did in Hannah's, as he does in ours for our good and for his glory. And we can trust him fully. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the constant testimony of your grace to your people. Even in our sins, your mind is on us. Uh, Lord, you come to us. You see our pains. Uh, Lord, you see even some of the pains that are self-inflicted, and yet you are compassionate to us. You hear our cries. Uh, you are gentle to the lowly, and you rescue us. Lord, we pray that you will bring salvation to those who need it this morning, Lord. And Lord, strengthen the rest of us, Lord. Strengthen all of us. Uh, cause us to trust in and rely upon you more and more. Lord, we pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be ours forevermore. In his name we pray, amen.